The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Okay, guys, well, let's, uh, let's jump in here. Let me pray. This, uh, again, th- this is a very hard subject, and um, I want to just ask for God's grace that we would have a, His mind and, and His heart, because um, these, are, these are difficult situations. And uh, so let's look to Him. Uh, Father, we're grateful again to be together. Uh, give us stamina for the long day. It's so good. We, we love your word. We love your people. We love to hear truth applied to life in ways that are helpful. And our own hearts need um, the encouragement of your word as well. Uh, but give us uh, strength uh, for the day and um, for this hour, and especially that we would really have your compassion and your care as we think about abuse, which is a really a lightning rod issue in our culture right now. And we want as the church to be a biblical voice speaking into that conversation and especially uh, to be able to engage in ministry to people that are hurting and struggling. So uh, would you help us in this hour to connect the glory of what Jesus has done for us and who we are in him with hurting people that have been abused and uh, send us out of here equipped to better help people to know those things. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Um, I I wish I could say that this was a topic that um, I didn't know a lot about and uh, hopefully that would mean that People weren't being abused, but the reality is, you know, that abuse is an epidemic of sorts. And um, obviously there's lots of good happening right now in the culture. People that have never talked about abuse are coming out and talking about it. And obviously that's a really important step. Um, And and yet there's also a lot of not so good things going with that, right? I mean, it's good that it's coming out. It's good that people are talking about it and getting help. But we also know that... uh, Uh, a secular culture that is void of God and void of a relationship with Jesus are not always going to give the right answers and the right help. So um, here's my premise. I think it is the church's job to be at the forefront of helping people that have been abused to find help and hope in the gospel of Jesus. That's our job. And we know the Bible's sufficient. We know Jesus is sufficient. So the question becomes, how do we connect what we know with hurting people in our community, hurting people in our church? You know, how, how do we have the type of community where a person says, I know I can go to that church and they will help me? And that's a challenge. And that looks one way in North Texas where I live. It looks a whole different way here in Southern California and wherever you're from, Albuquerque or Michigan or wherever you come from. So... So we really need to, to huddle up here and talk about how we can do this uh, in the name of Jesus and, and to help other people. Uh, most recently, uh, we've had some really uh, significant abuse cases in our church. Um, and I should say a little bit, uh, my name is Keith, and this is Helping Abuse Survivors Find Identity in Christ. Okay, got it. Um, and um, so I'm just a small-town pastor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, we have a free community counseling ministry in our town of about 15,000 people, 20,000 people. And so anybody can come to our church for free counseling. 
We have 10 ACBC certified counselors. Uh, ACBC is the international certifying organization behind our church, behind IBCD and many other training centers. And um, so that's what we do. And we have a heart for our community to try to help them. Uh, we're also in the Bible Belt, so people are not totally freaked out and scared about going to a church for help. So that's an advantage that we have in our culture that you may not have in yours. Um, but we just have, we, we've seen to have a real increase in abuse cases right now. Uh, some of them, uh, sad to say, involve children being abused and, and counseling them in situations where horrible verbal abuse, horrible uh, what we could call emotional abuse, which is basically a, a, a controlling, manipulative behavior, um, and your heart just breaks. And the reason it's so important to think about how identity in Jesus connects with abuse is that I think abuse survivors are particularly prone to believing wrong ideas about themselves and then living in light of that wrong identity. Now, that's true with any sin, right? Any, any false worship, any God replacement that we do, we assume an identity, even if it's painting yourself blue and going to sit on a football uh, stadium somewhere. But because abuse is so particularly hurtful and traumatic, you know, th there's an extra measure of need here, I think. So, so that's where this comes from, and, and I hope this will be uh, helpful to talk about. Now, for those of you that are new, I am, I'm not upset at the whiteboard. This is a smart board, and the way I advance the slide is I take this and I go click, and hopefully it works. So I'm not attacking the board. So the first thing we need to talk about, and, and some of this will be a little bit of review, um, but we need, to, I, we need to sort of define identity. Okay, So let's just, let's just think here about what we're hearing in the, in our, in the plenary sessions and whatnot. It, it, identity is just how you think about yourself. And I really appreciate what Jeremy said this morning, that this is not a simple topic. I mean, it really is very complex. We know, we know Christ is the foundation of identity, but then there's, you know, I'm a man, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I'm a chaplain, I'm, I'm a dad, I'm, right? There, there's all these other secondary identities that are good and right, um, but, but identity in its core is just how I view myself. And uh, if you were paying attention to my plenary session, you noticed the creation, fall, redemption outline, I hope. I was trying to keep some of you awake. But um, so we're created in the image and likeness of God, and that roots our identity in creation. And that, that's how identity was supposed to work. He makes us in his image. We worship him. And as we esteem him, we reflect that glory in our identity. It's distorted and perverted by the fall. We saw, talked about that. And then it's restored and progressively transformed in redemption. Now, we know, and uh, uh, let's just, let's just, can we just anchor our thoughts in uh, a passage to kind of get us out of the starting blocks here? To turn with me over to Galatians chapter 2. I, I waved my hands at this uh, in the plenary session, but let, let's stare at this for a moment and really just soak up the implications of this, this identity verse here. For a Christian, what, what is identity? Identity is summed up, as Paul writes to the Galatians. Now remember, they, they were all over the map in terms of identity because they had the gospel of Jesus, and then they had the Judaizers were, who were saying, yes, Jesus, but... Yes, the gospel, but you need this other thing. And they were adding components of Judaism to the gospel. 
And um, Paul lays it out in chapter 1. It's, it's pretty cut and dry. He says, if, if, you're, if you're preaching a different gospel, you're to be accursed. And, and adding anything to Jesus is a false gospel, Paul would argue. So as he's sort of clearing the deck and bringing us back to a foundation in Jesus alone and in the biblical gospel alone, he turns the corner in chapter 20 and makes this statement about identity. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live, I live in the flesh by the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. So, so our relationship with Jesus is the basis for our identity. And notice that identity involves my old self dying or being crucified with Christ. And then as Romans 6 says, I'm raised to walk in new identity in his life, in his resurrection life. And so when I think about myself, I think about that old Keith, that old self identified in Adam, identified in, in the old man with all those old ways, sinful ways, apart from God, false identities. And when I come to Christ, it's saying that dies. And, and that, that identity is gone. And, and who I was in Adam is now dead. I am connected to Christ. My union is with him. And my identity now follows my new relationship with Jesus. And that, that's the logic of the biblical gospel as we think about identity. And if this sounds familiar, it We've been saying this all week so far, right? So, but, but watch how this works now. And you need to get this because when you work with abuse survivors, it, I, I find that, that abuse counseling, you end up, once you get past involvement, which is a whole challenge because often they have trouble trusting people, the, the counseling work really ends up being in two realms. One is... Who is God? Who am I? What is the gospel? Just sort, just sort of rediscovering or, in some cases, newly discovered truths, right? And so, who is God? Who is Jesus? Who am I? That's where one realm of work happens. The other realm of work is, how do I consistently think of myself in light of those gospel truths? And that's why this is so important, because he says, how do you consistently live like that? Well, here he, he tells us, um, I've been crucified with Christ, no longer I live, Christ lives in me. The life which I now live by in the flesh, and, and by flesh there he means, you know, this earthly life, I live by what? By, this is the part where you talk, everybody says, faith, okay. What does that mean? What does that actually mean? I mean, faith is one of those Sunday school terms that we throw around, but it's like, what does that really mean? Trust. It means trust. Okay, so in the context, the life that I now live, I live by trusting in who? Look, look at your Bibles. The Son of God. In the Son of God who did what? Loved me, loved me and who gave himself. gave himself up for me. That's where the battle often lies. They know Jesus, they know the gospel, but they are so used to thinking of themselves influenced by abuse that it's not making an impact in their life. So, so you need to get this. Abuse counseling is no different than any other situation in that we are trying to help a person to live trusting in who Jesus is and who Jesus says that they are connected to him. Does that make sense? It's learning to live trusting in that, not believing the voices of the past or the habits 
that may have been created, th those things that they've heard thousands and thousands and thousands of times about you're worthless and, and you're never going to amount to anything and you're fat and you're ugly. And, you know, what, whatever the nature of the abuse was, maybe it's sexual, maybe it's emotional, maybe it was physical domestic, you know, whatever it is, all of that has shaped how they think about themselves and, and, and the real... Um, the real work in counseling is helping them little by little chip away at this idea that I need to live trusting who Jesus says I am and not all these other things I've been believing. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. So with that in mind, let, let's talk about how that actually works, okay? So when we think about abuse and identity issues, I, I, just, I just started writing. I mean, I, you know, looking through old case reports. Abuse... Uh, survivors have usually have huge amounts of struggle with identity. I mean, just, just think about some of these, right? And, and I want to hear your ideas here in a moment, okay? Forgetting what you were like before the abuse. You ever talk to somebody like that? I don't, I can't remember a time I was happy. I can't remember being normal, whatever that was before the abuse. Feeling like everything is your fault. Constantly questioning your motives. You see this in, in what's called emotional abuse, highly manipulative and controlling behavior. Um, identity is solely based on a relationship with the abuser. So there's no identity apart from the abuser, uh, usually in a domestic situation. Feeling like you aren't okay and need to change. Rejecting your own self-perception. You think you must rely on the abuser for what is true. Um, let's do a few more here. Is this connect you, you, how many have counseled an abuse situation? Okay. Is this sounding familiar? Okay. Um, and, and again, we're, we're lumping together all different types of abuse counseling here, so some of these apply more uh, than others. But, but just think about this. Feeling like you're, you're losing touch with reality. You can't trust yourself. Feeling guilty or full of shame. Feeling dirty or constantly bad. Feeling like you have to be perfect to stop the abuse. Feeling worthless or unlovable. Feeling like you are blank and insert the lie created by the abuser. Feeling alone. Feeling afraid. Fearful. Feeling like people know what you're really... Isn't that interesting? They go around thinking, everybody knows what happened to me. Well, nobody knows what happened to you. But they feel like it, and they live in light of that misperception. Feeling like no one understands, feeling like you have no control, feeling like a victim, feeling like you have to earn love, feeling apart from yourself. In psychology, sometimes they call this depersonalization, derealization, or disassociation. But, but really, biblically, those things are just describing uh, a feeling of saying, I feel like I'm, I'm watching my life like I'm watching a movie. You know, I feel disconnected from what's actually going on in my life. Okay? Uh, denying what happened. What are other things? And just what, if, what have you seen that we can share with each other and learn from? Other challenges that you see, identity challenges in abuse counseling? Story like it's never going to end. Never going to end. Mm hmm. Right. Similar to a feeling like no one understands is that no one's went through this. Right. I'm the only one. Yeah. Right. It's not common to man. Not common to man. That's right. Mm -hmm. Very good. Someone else? Sometimes they um, feel like they deserved it. They deserved it. Mm -hmm. Ma'am? Yeah, I worked with some really, really little kids as young as like three and mm -hmm. just a complete, you know, they don't even have vocabulary to say what happened. Right. I appreciate you saying that because with children, you know, they're, they're not mature adults yet. And so identity looks different because it's developing. Yeah. And um, 
So yeah, it, it could be particularly challenging when it happens uh, to you, and, and, and tragic too. I just, your heart breaks. Um, okay, so here's some of the identity issues. I think we all agree identity issues are a big part of abuse counseling typically. So how do you know what kind of identity problem exists? Okay, there's this dear sister and your uh, ladies, you're wanting to minister to her and care for her in the name of Christ. How are you going to know what kind of identity problems exist with her? You're going to listen. Okay. Now, here's the challenge. Um, you build a trusting relationship. That's one of the key elements, one of the six key elements of biblical counseling is build a trusting relationship. Uh, sometimes clinically it's called building involvement. In the Bible, it's just living out the one another commands, right? You're, you're, you're building a loving relationship in Jesus' name uh, of trust. Uh, why do we do that? Proverbs 27.9, anybody know that verse by heart? I'll start it for you. You end it. I know it's Friday afternoon. Is it Friday? Friday afternoon. <laughs> it's Friday. Um, a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Interesting. So what's Solomon saying? He's saying a person is probably more likely to listen to you if they perceive you as a friend. Right? So that's where building involvement, building trust is important there. Now, what's the challenge? The challenge is, oh, i got to tell the challenge before I tell you the solution. Don't read ahead. Pay no attention to that. Here's the challenge. What do most abuse survivors struggle with? Trust. And if they're in your church, praise God, maybe you have a relationship with them and hopefully that if they're coming to your counseling center like they might at our church, they don't know me, they don't know some of our female counselors and they're already suspicious, they're already hurting, they're already struggling with trust, that's the challenge. We can't minister to them effectively if there isn't some sort of trust in that relationship. But the abuse makes that really, really challenging most of the times. So what do you do? Now we'll look at the solution. The solution is God must work in their heart. You can't, you can't manufacture that. You can't do it. Uh, you, you pray. You pray for God to work. You do what God tells you to do in terms of loving that person well and listening well and being patient, encouraging, kind, okay, the, the, the commands there. Um, but God has to work in the heart. I also find, too, and, and uh, you know, can I tell you a secret? God designed counseling to be in the local church. It's in the Bible. I checked. Um, so the idea of counseling happening outside of the local church is really not, not God's design. Now, we're thankful. We understand some of that supplementary and, and praise the Lord for that. But the primary counseling that God intends to happen is designed to be in the local church in these things call, called uh, uh, communities, right? Communities of faith. So when we're thinking about building a trusting relationship, we're not just saying, hey, you know, I'm going to meet with you regularly and we're going to, you know, community is really important because God didn't design, you know, a, a counseling center. He designed a local church where all of the body of Christ could participate in the one another's corporate worship, equipping, encouraging. Um, so trying to get that person, if they're a believer, get them in the body of Christ. If they're an unbeliever, we reach out to them loving our neighbor, right, in Christ's name, and, and we invite them to trust Christ so that they can be a part of, uh, of uh, the family of God. Uh, and then secondly, uh, as we trust God, as we pray, as we uh, try to live those things out in a trusting relationship, 
The second thing is, is patiently gathering data. This is 1813. I don't give an answer before you hear. Now, how's that going to go in a typical abuse case? It might not come out. Yeah, they might not be coming to talk to you about abuse. It may be, you know, some other thing, and then six sessions in, eight sessions in, six months in, you find out, oh, this happened. Now, ladies, has that happened to you before? That happens a lot. Our lady counselors say this happens regularly. They come in, you know, I'm having anxiety, you know, and then three weeks into it, it's like, oh, I've got this abuse issue I've never dealt with. So um, I found that, that gathering data is going to take longer. And abuse cases typically go slower. This is a marathon ministry. This is not the 100-meter dash um, in counseling, typically. So pace yourself. Be patient. And, and remember, biblical counselors never stop doing data gathering. I don't know what kind of training you had where it's like, you know, session one, I'm going to do data gathering, and then I know everything I need to know, and then I move on to the gospel. And, then, and, and it's not bad to have an outline, but remember, you never stop doing data gathering. Your, your biblical counseling data gathering radar is doo -doo, always pinging and looking for information. And especially when things don't add up. A lot of times the way abuse comes up is you're hearing it and you're going, this isn't all adding up. And so you compassionately begin to ask some questions, you know, just trying to, trying to dig a little deeper there. Okay? Now we need to review biblical anthropology as we, we think about identity and abuse. Because the reality is uh, believers are both sufferers and sinners, aren't they? And actually all people are sufferers and sinners in that regard. Which means uh, there are sinful things that are done to us that the Bible would call true suffering. Right? I'm not responsible for this. Someone else sinned against me. That's called authentic suffering. And I'm also a sinner, right? And I appreciate... Uh, uh, Jeremy Pierre's talk this morning, just developing all of that and how he, I think, very helpfully and wisely laid that out, that I, I am a sinner, you know, even though I'm redeemed, I, I still have that and I have, to, I have to think about what that means and how it still affects me even in, uh, in remaining sin. So just remember that because I think when it comes to abuse victims and survivors, one of the things that we ought to do is, re is lean real heavy on the fact that they're a sufferer. And we ought to. In fact, that's, that's where we should start. What we don't want to do, and, and this is where some of our, our Christian psychologist friends uh, and, and our, our secular friends, uh, they, they don't have a category for this. Or if they do, it, it takes a real back seat. Now, we don't want to sit down with an abuse survivor and talk about you know, you know, their, their depraved nature. And, I mean, obviously, we're not going to do that. But here's the thing, you have to balance both of those because both of those things are true. We want to help the person to see, I guess this is the next slide here, that they are an active responder to the sin done to them versus passive victims. Okay, now just to underscore this, this is uh, going to feel like biblical counseling kindergarten, but I'm risking that. This might be a kindergarten classroom, so maybe it's appropriate. But let's go back to, um, oh, let, let's go back to, to Mark chapter 7. And let's just, again, anchor our thoughts in a, a text of clear biblical anthropology that we need to have in our minds to think about identity and how to help abuse survivors. Uh, you guys know the story as you're turning there. Uh, this is the, uh, you know, Jesus is um, with his disciples and the Pharisees are all wound up because... Uh, his disciples are not going through the ceremonial ritual washing before eating. 
And uh, just, just a footnote for the moms in the room, this is not a verse on hygiene, okay? Jesus is not saying, you know, don't send your kids to wash their hands. This is a verse on religious cleansing based on the Pharisaic laws that were prominent in the first century. So that's the, and, and so they're all bent out of shape. You know, your disciples eat with unwashed hands. And so that starts this debate about what causes you to be unclean. Does eating with unwashed hands defile you? And, and Jesus turns the corner and says, you, you got this all backward. Okay, so he, he teaches in the group and then the disciples get together with him and, and he tries to explain this to him. Uh, Mark chapter 7 Verse 14, listen to me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside of the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. Uh, and then are you, uh, verse 18, are you so lacking also, understanding also, talking to the disciples, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated, and thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, here, here's the key phrase here, that which proceeds out of the man, that's what defiles him. For it's from within, out of the heart of men, that proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, and deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So Jesus is saying it's your inner man. It's the spiritual part of you that drives all of these things in life. Now, why is that important? Because the, the predominant view of anthropology in our culture when it comes to abuse is a passive victim mentality. And the passive victim mentality says people do things to you and those people are responsible. And to that, Christians would say, absolutely. But then when they look at the abuse survivor, they say, you are not responsible in any way for how you respond to that. Now, that's where we have to walk a really clear line because on the one hand, we do not want to unintentionally communicate to somebody that already thinks the abuse is her fault that they somehow bear a responsibility for the abuse itself, right? So we have to draw that line and say, no, no, no. Um, in fact, uh, Brian Borgman, go back to listen to Brian Borgman's uh, talk last night about uh, family identity where he unpacked uh, Ezekiel 18 and talking about, you know, the the... the the, um, everybody bears the consequences of their own sin, right? And that, that's true biblically, and Ezekiel 18 unpacks all that. At the same time, God does hold us responsible for how we respond to all of life, including abuse. And that's what, like, what Jesus says is so helpful here. If you're dealing with this dear sister, and she is bitter, and she is angry, and she is making ungodly choices and, and, and she's taking the, the wrong done to her and she's running with it in a life of, of recklessness that's just going to make things worse. So we don't want to say, oh yeah, what, what person that loves that person would say, yeah, keep doing that. We, we don't want to say, no, stop. So there's this line between I am not responsible for what's done to me. And we got to do a lot of counseling there sometimes, but I am responsible before God for what comes out of my heart according to Jesus, in response to the abuse. Are okay, you with me on that? And that is a fine line that you pray with your eyes open in the counseling room to try to walk. You, uh, you guys pray with your eyes open in the counseling room? If not, you should, because it's a, it's a good thing to do. Okay, so that's the point of that, is we just have to be very careful about that. Inner and outer man, um, sexual abuse, right? There may be uh, physiological um, Realities, sexually transmitted diseases, um, you know, injury caused if, if it's physical or domestic abuse, 
there may be injury done there. So we're thinking about inner man and outer man issues in terms of um, we want to deal with their heart, but we also may need to deal with some of the body issues uh, that go on there. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. So identity issues are largely cognitive perceptions of oneself based upon evaluations. So, so thankful uh, for the emphasis on perception this morning. That was really helpful. And that, that's exactly right as the Bible unfolds it. These thoughts influenced by beliefs, desires, and expectations and experiences. Okay. Now here's another interesting thing. Traumatic experiences often connect inner man perceptions with outer man experiences. You with me on that? Okay. So I'll, I'll give you a different, uh, I'll, be, I'll give you an easier analogy and we'll come back to this, okay? PTSD. Um, someone's been serving our country overseas, combat zone, comes back, and uh, they're sitting at the playground with their kids. And dad's home and we're having a great time and car backfires, okay? Their ears hear the sound of a car backfiring. What is that? That's physiology, isn't it? But what often happens is they go into a very significant inner man response where they're back on the battlefield, okay? So what you see, an association between an outer man experience and a backfire, uh, um, a smell, a, um, a context that you see, right? And an inner man response. Interesting, I, I put Genesis uh, 8.21 here. It's, uh, that's the passage where after Noah gets off the boat, God smells the soothing aroma of the offering Noah offers, and he says, you know what, I'm never going to do this again. And it's, it's a passing comment, but even God has this association between a physiological phenomenon, he smells the soothing aroma, and the, and the covenant with Noah, right? That he's not going to flood the world again. So my point is, you see sometimes that abuse survivors have a, an association between something in the outer man, uh, something they hear, something they see, something they smell, and an inner man response that relates to that trauma. And you need to unpack that because we're trying to care for the whole person here. You can't ignore the physiology part of this. Does that make sense now? Are you with me on that? Okay. That's a little bit harder to understand, but so we need to include that. Now, um, that's our, our anthropology review. So the, the next thing we need to do in thinking about abuse survivors and identity is recognize that there are counterfeit, counterfeit Christs in her life. Uh, mark it. You will find counterfeit Christs in the life of every person you counsel. You say, what's a counterfeit Christ? It's a false refuge. It's a place you run instead of Jesus. You say, where do we hear that? Well, well we know the Bible uses these wonderful metaphors to describe our relationship with God. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What's he saying? In your day of trouble, you should turn to God for safety and help and security. That's a refuge, right? You know, back in that day, the, the way that you protected your city was you had walls and you had moats and you had soldiers and you had strong towers that people couldn't get into. That's the metaphor. God is that place of safety. And then in the Psalms and the Proverbs, we're going we're to hear things like this. Um, Cursed is the man who, how's it go? It's Friday afternoon. Um, 
basically the, the, the idea is uh, curses the man who, who makes man his refuge. There's one reference to making men his refuge. There's another to making money his refuge. Okay, so the point is there are false refuges. There are false saviors. Other places we run to, I'm calling them counterfeit Christs. Now, you need to identify these because these, these tend to fall into, um, actually, that's the verse. So why don't I just read it, Keith? Okay, I'll stick to my notes. Uh, Proverbs 28. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it. 28, 26. Uh... And that's not it. Man, I'm just not helping you guys. I'm sorry. I'll figure that out. Um, no, wait. 20, 26. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Now, I do live in Texas. Uh, we do a lot of country music out there. And 97% of all country music has one theme. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. And I'm here to tell you, um, Jesus says, don't do that, right? Because he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, okay? So when we think about abuse survivors, what are some counterfeit Christs? Here's some ideas. Self-solutions that make me feel in control, but ultimately do not transform the heart, okay? What are we talking about here? Assertiveness training. You guys know what I'm talking about? Assertiveness training. You demand your ways. You micromanage your life so that you can never be hurt again. You keep everybody at arm's distance. You control everything. The, the boundaries language. Now, now, boundaries aren't all bad, right? Boundary, if boundary to you means I'm going to set up a biblical guideline in my life that helps me honor Jesus. Well, great. That's a good boundary. If boundary to you means I'm going to put this rule in my life so that person can never hurt me or take advantage of me, I'm here to tell you that probably is going to compromise your ability to love your neighbor. So we need to think wisely about some of those worldly solutions, okay? Um, Self-protective means, manipulation. It, it, it's sad, but a lot of times what you see is a person turning from the abuse to this self-protective, uh, focused on myself, um, uh, blaming, bitter, angry. I mean, it, it's, it's a mess, and you know what I'm talking about. And, we, we look at them and we feel for them. We know why they're there. And, and we ought to have a, a soft spot in terms of uh, why they ended up there. But that's a Christless solution, isn't it? You can't love God and love neighbor if, if you're living in a self-made refuge. Right? So we need to watch out for that. The other one are false refuges that make me feel better for a moment but are destructive. So um, addictions... Uh, shopping, I heard that called retail therapy one time. Um, so there you go. Food, entertainment, drugs, meds, cutting, sexual sin, overindulging in relationships, and on and on and on. What are some other false refuges that you see abuse survivors turn to? What, what have you learned in your experience? Yoga. Yoga. All right. They're working out there. Yeah, working out. Mm -hmm. Or the opposite, low motivation. Okay. All right. Anything else? Alcohol? Workaholism. Oh, workaholism, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be overindulging relationships, but like a mentorship, just mm -hmm. seeing the mentor as a savior. Sure. Yeah, yeah so I'm... Treating them as Jesus. Does that ever happen to biblical counselors? Yeah, make sure you don't do things that encourage you to be that person's savior. That's a good, that's a good word. Okay. Um, 
All right, so, so those are some of the counterfeit criteria. Now, now, why is it important to identify those? Yeah, that's your competition, right? This is what they're turning to instead of Jesus. And here's the scary thing. They're reading blogs about this. They've got well-meaning girlfriends telling them to do this. They're reading books about this. They've got people at church telling them to do this. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, the, the worst enemy of a biblical counselor sometimes is a well-meaning friend with bad counsel. So be careful and identify that. Again, we're coming alongside gently, compassionately. We're, we're, not, we're not doing high-handed repentance calls here, but we're saying, hey, Jesus offers a better way. This seems right to a man, but in the end, it's, it's destruction, isn't it? Right? This will keep you from loving God and loving neighbor. So let's find a better alternative. Now, I've found, tell me if you found this, people don't come out of their false refuges quickly. Have you found that to be true? People come out of their false refuges slowly and cautiously, sometimes kicking and screaming. Um, but you need to graciously call them out of those false refuges to trust in the true God and the true Savior. All right. So uh, we identify some counterfeit Christs. And once we do that, as we mentioned, this, this is an occasion for repentance. Um, so let's talk about what does identity in Christ look like in terms of uh, helping an abuse survivor find identity in Christ. And I just want to break this up into some categories, okay? We need to talk about the scriptures. We need to talk about God. We need to talk about self. And we talk about Jesus and the gospel, okay? So let's just walk through those quickly. We have to start with the scriptures. So turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 119. And you sit and listen, and I will read 176 verses to you. <laughs> Uh, actually, that would be a great way to spend our afternoon. I mean, we need to do that sometime because this is, this is life. Um, so, so good. Uh, for purposes of our time today, uh, let me direct your attention just to one stanza in, starting in verse 89. Um, we understand that God communicates his truth to us in a divinely inspired book, right? We understand that. We're biblical counselors. That's why that's our name. And therefore, if we're going to help this dear sister in Christ who's struggling with identity, we need to help her to think about the scriptures rightly. Now, I'll tell you what is horrible sometimes is that a Christian woman coming out of abuse often has had the Bible thrown at her and used against her in inappropriate ways. You seen that before? Okay, you need to submit to me because Ephesians, okay, well, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll skip the part about you're loving her like Christ loved the church, right? Um, you think she might be a little suspicious when you open your Bible? Okay, so be careful. Pace yourself and, and, and check this out first, okay? But you may need to do some work right here. Here's, um, why are we missing one of those? Oh, memorization was coming late, so... But, but listen to Psalm 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. Now, here's the key, key verse here, okay? If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my 
affliction. Whoa. I mean, you could spend weeks trying to help her to really buy into the the truth of that verse. What, What is the author saying? He's saying the word of God is your survival in affliction. And he's not saying this as some, you know, clinician, you know, launching it out. He's saying, this is my experience. If your word had not been my delight in my affliction, then I would have perished. So we need to help uh, these dear friends coming out of abuse to see that the scriptures are life. They're they're, they're the way that we access God's truth and and, and come to know him. And, And so we need to think about that. I threw some stuff up here that they need to know things, obviously, right? There's education. There's trust, right? And if the Bible has been used against them, they may know a lot of Bible. They don't trust it. And they don't trust the author that gave it either, probably. So there's work that needs to be done there. Application, okay? I, I, I know what the Bible says. I'm buying into it. I'm trusting it. Now I need to figure out how to put it into practice in my life. And, and the two ways that we like to reinforce that is memorization and meditation. So this is the good old emphasis on the spiritual disciplines. Um, I, do, do you guys do spiritual disciplines in your, in your homework and growth assignments? Can I just encourage you, if you're not doing, doing that, help this dear person, not just for your season of counseling, but for the rest of her life by getting her into the normal spiritual disciplines as a regular part of her life. So long after you graduated for counseling, guess what hopefully goes on? She's continuing to practice those spiritual disciplines. So try to do that. The the second area when we're talking about identity is we have to talk about God. And usually abuse survivors are going to struggle with their view of God. And this is an area where we just need to go slow and uh, and be very uh, patient and and understanding and compassionate, try to develop all this. But let me just, can I just show you one of my favorite passages to go to in terms of the character of God? Exodus chapter 34. Uh, We'll go back there. Um, This is the part where... um, Moses has come down the mountain and he sees the golden calf and he throws down the tablets and breaks them and then he runs over and yells at Aaron and and they take the golden calf and he grinds it into powder, throws it in the lake, makes everybody drink it and then has a call for repentance and some people repent, some people don't and the angel of the Lord comes and wipes out everybody who doesn't repent. I mean, this is like a really shocking story. And, uh, And why did all that happen? Because God and Moses were taking too long on Mount Sinai. And so the people rose up, and we don't know, we don't know what happened to Moses. Let's make a God. And, and the crazy thing is, they don't just make a God. They bowed down to him, and they say, this is the one who rescued us out of the land of Egypt. It's blatant idolatry. And uh, Moses intervenes in all this. Uh, you know the story. God says, I'm not going to go with you. You go, Moses. And Moses pleads and says, no, these are your people. And And so uh, God says, okay, I'll go with you. And uh, Moses is so overjoyed that God is going to continue with the people, though they're stubborn and rebellious. He he says this, show me your glory. Probably without thinking. Because you don't see the glory of God and live in the Bible. You die. And his excitement, he, he wants to know this God that has just shown such compassion and so you get, the, you get the idea that Moses says, show me your glory. And then he goes, what did I say? <laughs> and then God says, okay. Meet me up at this mountain tomorrow morning. Bring two new stone tablets. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over. I'll reveal myself to you. I'll, I'll show you my glory. And at the last moment, I'll remove my hand and you'll see the afterglow of my glory. I think of that as, you know, you're watching a fireworks display. <laughs> 
right? And then the shock and awe wears off, and then there's this little, like, glow, right? And, and so in some way, Moses got to see, the, it's literally the, the backside of God's glory. And it's shocking that Moses doesn't tell us anything about what he saw, even though he wrote the account, right? But he does tell us what God said, and that's the point. Who God is is revealed not in an experience with God, but in who he is. So Exodus 34 the, the Lord, the Lord God, passes in front of Moses in verse 6. Listen to this. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who gives for iniquity, transgression, and sin. And he goes on there. What a great description of God. And remember, theology never comes to us in the Bible in a vacuum. Right? The Bible never presents theology like, oh, here's a systematic theology and pulls it off the shelf. We're thankful for those. I love systematic theologies. But theology always comes to us in the milieu of life. Why might it have been significant that God in this moment says, I'm compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, and I keep my loving kindness for thousands, and I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. Why might that be significant in this context? Because they've just committed blatant idolatry. They just got the Ten Commandments. Can you imagine? They've gathered at the mountain. Everybody's exciting. The lightning and the smoke and the earthquake. And they're out of Egypt. We're going to meet our God. And this is what happens. And God says, even in the face of your blatant idolatry, let me tell you who I am. I'm compassionate. And I'm full of grace and mercy and abounding in forgiveness. See, theology never comes in a vacuum. It comes in the context of real-life problems. So look, when, biblical counselors, look for that when you, when you minister theology to somebody. Put it in its context so people can see that. So the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the sovereignty of God, the Psalms are a great source of theology in the realities and, and, and experiences of life. So look for those. Um, I mentioned this with addictions in my last workshop, and it's true in abuse expect that she will have wrong ideas about God. Um, the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3 uh, recounts how as he would walk into the city each day to preach God's message, the people on the side of the road would make up songs and sing them, mocking the prophet of God. We read in the book of Job after he is afflicted and not, not uh, I mean, abused by the Sabaeans in terms of they killed his children. Um, and then he gets that affliction. And we read in, in uh, chapters 5, 6, and chapter 9, Job's view of God turns into a monster. I mean, both Jeremiah and Job use the same language. They say, God, it's like you're an archer and you dip your arrows in poison and then you shoot them at us. Job says, why don't you stop? You're afflicting me without cause. I can't sleep. I, I can't think straight. And even when I do sleep, you afflict me with nightmares. And that's what happens in abuse and in trauma is people, even people like Job, who in chapter 1 and 2 had pretty good theology, pretty good walk with God. Just a few chapters later, when trauma comes and abuse comes and affliction comes, it's like God's a monster now. So, in abuse, expect that people will have many wrong ideas about God that need to be addressed and ministered to. Slowly, compassionately, but don't avoid those things. Um, you will not trust a God and listen to a God that you think is out to get you or doesn't care about your abuse. 
or doesn't love you. Right? You're not going to trust a God like that. So theology proper becomes a big part of this. Okay? With that, expect that they are going to have lies about themselves. Uh, again, you notice the outline from uh, earlier today, created by God as an image bearer, a fallen sinner, guilty, deserving of God's judgment, but redeemed, forgiven, adopted, transformed, and free. Um, so again, where's the work happen in abuse counseling? Who is God? Who am I? Right? And, and, you're, and you're working in those realms. You're trying to, what, where are they? What do they believe? And then how do I minister to? Um, anyway, so, so we'll, we'll talk more about them in a minute. Um, and then Jesus and the gospel. Okay, so these are, the, these are the areas we're trying to help. And, and to do this, I put a chart in your notes. And if you were in the session last hour, you'll notice it's the same chart. Um, it's called Identity and Union with Christ. And, and what I tried to do, this is what I wish I could have done in the plenary, but I didn't have time. Okay, so this is the whole thing. Um, I am in Christ. I am accepted, accepted. I am adopted. So on the left-hand column, it's a spiritual truth about your Christianity, what it means, the problem it's designed to address, and some scriptures that help us to know that those things are true. Okay, I would, uh, the reason I'm putting this in your notes is this is the sort of uh, outline that I would encourage you to follow in helping an abuse survivor think about herself and her identity in Christ. Okay, so the scriptures, God, myself, and, and now the gospel and Jesus. Now, a couple of things. I, I circled this part of it because I, I finished the chart and I sent it in and I thought, you know what? We live in such a highly psychotherapeutic culture. My fear is some people might read this column and think, you know, these are psychological needs, right? I need to be accepted. I need to be loved. I need to be, and, and no, that's not what we're talking about. These are biblically defined problems that the gospel is designed to address, right? So, for example, rejection in the psychotherapeutic world would say, you need to be accepted to be whole and, and, and happy and all that. And we're not saying that that's, that's a bad thing to say. But rejection and acceptance in the Bible is not this experiential psychological experience. It's saying your sin separated you from God. You were rejected in Genesis 3 in Adam from a relationship with him. And now in Christ, he accepts you, considering you with favor. Okay, so you see the difference? There's a big difference between a biblically defined spiritual need and a culturally defined psychological need. And here's the problem they often use the same vocabulary. So watch for that, okay? Uh, we're defining these things biblically, and hopefully the meaning here will help you to see that. Okay, so work through this. And again, this is something you would work through over weeks and months. Don't, don't blow through this. She needs to really come to understand these truths about God and herself. So I'm justified. That's legal culpability, right? I'm redeemed. I'm rescued. The Bible is rich with this, isn't it? If you can go through all the... All these different ways the Bible describes our redemption. I'm raised unto new life. Uh, I'm a member of Christ's body. I'm no longer under judgment. I am known by God. I am chosen, like uh, Deepak shared last night. I am loved. Man, do, you know, do you know how many abuse survivors really, truly do not believe, even though they may have been churched their whole life, that God really loves them? Because they're letting the abuse define the character of God. Right? Now, is that new? No. How many times do you see the psalmist 
let his experience define the character of God? How many times do you see Job let his experience define the character of God? How many times, right? That's what fallen people do. So work through this slowly. Share these things. Uh, meditation, prayer, application. And, all, and, and remember, there's a lot of eyes in that first column. Do not ever, ever, ever buy into what is sometimes called the psychological gospel. We'll talk about it in a minute. That I'm a new creature, I'm holy, I'm secure, I'm loved. Yes, 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 but it's all to the glory of God. That's Ephesians 1, right? God does all these mechanics in redemption to the glory and praise of His name. So, so let's, not, let's not get a big head via Jesus, right? Let's be humbled and stand in awe of Jesus in light of the fact that He does these things, okay? You got it? So that's underline it, highlight it, start, circle it, all to the glory of God on the bottom there. Um, the reason is uh, the psychological gospel twists all that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, here's another thing you need to help somebody to see. Um, let's wave our hands at this because I know you know the verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18. But, but you need to hear this in the context of helping somebody who genuinely believes they are stuck and will never change. Right? This is just my life now. This is just the way things are. Just accept it. Right? Listen to the encouragement of Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. My dear sister, I have good news for you. Jesus is saying, as you come to know him and look to him and learn his word and learn his character and to delight and meditate on those things, you're going to change. And you're not just going to change like change to whatever you're going to change to, to reflect more of who he is. Uh, John Newton, you may know him as the hymn writer of Amazing Grace, had a wonderful pastoral care ministry. He was like the original biblical counselor who counseled via letter writing, which is one of the ways you did that because there was no blogs and texting back then, right? Um, here, here's what Newton says in one of his letters. We become by beholding. We become by beholding. You say, where do you get that? He got that from this verse. As we know Jesus and learn him and spend time with him in the word and, and what he thinks and how he acts and how he responds and, and reveling in that relationship, we take on that. Just like when my kids were little and, and they, they connected with you know, their favorite superhero and they got the action figures and all that and they ran around and they, they, they took on their identity, right? Well, that's the way identity is supposed to work. As we look to Jesus and know him, we begin to start looking like him. Okay, I'm repeating myself now, but here we go. Now, this is the counterfeit gospel. This is the psychological gospel. Um, David Pallison, uh, how many know the name David Pallison? Okay, about half of you. Uh, you heard um, uh, Jim Neuheiser talk about that last night. David Pallison was a dear man, one of the pioneers of the biblical counseling movement, uh, wrote wonderful, anything by David Pallison, if you see it, buy it. And, and we would not say that about just any author, but he's so good, so helpful. He wrote an article... Uh, called The Therapeutic Gospel, and I think it's in your resources there somewhere, where he talks about the psychological or therapeutic gospel versus the biblical gospel. But the point is, you can take the gospel, which is designed to be to the praise of His glory, and you can make it a man-centered gospel, where Jesus does all that to make me 
the center of it all, you know, I love me and I find myself worried. So, so this is just, abuse survivors are so prone to this sort of victimization in a spiritual way where we take their abuse and we feed them the psychological gospel. So, so here's the psychological gospel in a nutshell. The chief end of God is to glorify man, whereas the Bible teaches the chief end of man is to glorify God. So reference that Pallison article, so helpful. Uh, the gospel is about making much of God, uh, not about God making much of you. That's from John Piper, God is the Gospel, chapter 1. You need to read that. Okay, so uh, you have homework. Okay, so what are the biblical means of tra- oh, the biblical means of transformation? Now you're gonna you're, you're gonna see some of these, and you're gonna go, you know, these sound familiar. Well, these are the normal means of grace for sanctification, aren't they? You, you don't, you know, you have one toolbox for biblical counseling. You don't ditch that and get a brand new toolbox when you do abuse counseling. It's the same tools, sometimes applied differently, some, sometimes the timing of it, sometimes the format a little bit different because you have to consider the need of the moment. But what are we doing? We're thinking about renewing the mind. Let me, can I just walk you through one of these real practically? Uh, if you're in 2 Corinthians still, just flip over to um, chapter 10. And Paul's going to make this statement. Okay, As you're turning to chapter 10, uh, remember this is a spiritual warfare section. There are G.I. Joe terms all over this uh, uh, passage here. Weapons and divinely powerful and fortresses and just remember, spiritual warfare, according to the Bible, is something that happens in your heart in terms of what you believe and what you think. That's where spiritual warfare happens, at least according to the Bible. Okay? It's not out there. It's in here as we battle what we believe and what we think. And so, so Paul brings this to a crescendo in chapter 10, verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. How do we do that? We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So you want spiritual warfare? Here it is. Be very, very, very careful what you believe and what you think, especially if it is raised up meaning it opposes or challenges what God says. So how do you do spiritual warfare? You take every thought captive. So how does that look with an abuse survivor? Let me, let me demonstrate it. She's going to think things like this. I'm not worth anything. I'm guilty. I can't trust anyone. I just want to die. And a thousand other things that are what? Raised up against the knowledge of God. They compete with what God says about her. Right? So... You have to, and we, we use the put off, put on uh, uh, language of Ephesians and, and Colossians here. But this is where the real work of counseling happens outside of counseling. To train her to begin to take her thoughts captive as she comes to trust Christ, as she comes to believe his word, as she becomes to uh, embrace the gospel, putting off thoughts like this. And replacing them with truth, right? Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Meaning if it doesn't line up with Christ, you get rid of it. Or better, you sanctify it and replace it with something true. So Jesus is of ultimate worth, and I'm in Him, right? Now, the psychological gospel would say this. Oh, I'm worth an infinite love because Jesus died for me. Well, does Jesus' death and and resurrection and gospel demonstrate His love for us? Well, absolutely it does. The Bible tells us that. Does it demonstrate our value in his sight? Absolutely it does. But that's not the point of the gospel, is it? The point of the gospel is to make much of Jesus and say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. 
So we help her to put off, put on. I am guilty. Well, God has declared me not guilty because of Jesus' work. I can't trust anyone. Jesus will help me to learn to trust him because he is truly worthy of my trust. And in time, he will give me the grace to demonstrate appropriate trust in others. Uh, I just want to die. Jesus had given me a valuable gift of life, though I am in great pain. My life is still valuable, and God will help me to find grace and help in my pain as I look to him. So you see that? It's not complicated. You're just helping them to, to take these thoughts captive and, you know, eject them out of your mind, and then you replace them. That's Philippians 4, right? Think on things that are true and right and lovely. You're replacing them. And, and here's how abuse counseling happens. You need to get really, 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 really specific and personal in crafting assignments like this because this is just a sample of probably the hundreds of things she thinks about every day. And you need to discover those things and help her to put off and put on appropriately. Okay, make sense? Okay. Um, so biblical means of transformation. Again, nothing, nothing profound here. Renewing the mind. We talked about that. Taking thoughts captive. We talked about that. Dwelling on what's true. The put on side. Confession and forgiveness. There's all sorts of wrong ideas about confession and forgiveness in the abuse world from, you know, you never forgive to wrong ideas about forgiveness. So I would reference uh, the Peacemaker material by Ken Sandy. If you're not familiar with that, that will handle this whole, prop, this whole uh, subject of confession and forgiveness. And then I love this, uh, belonging in the family of God. What a person needs as an expression of their identity in Christ is to be in Christian community and to learn from loving people, loving community, how to walk with God, how to be a part of that family, using their gifts, worshiping, serving, and all of that. So how do you implement all this? Again, nothing profound here, but these are the normal means of grace that God uses to transform us. Memorization. Do you guys have your counselees memorize? Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God, right? So, uh, yeah, memorization. Memorization gives the Holy Spirit ammunition in the moment when you don't have your Bible open. Right? Uh, singing. Notice how often, we talked about it in, in Ephesians 5 with uh, drunkenness uh, last hour, but one of the expressions that you're walking by means of the Spirit is you sing. A singing Christian is a healthy Christian. A Christian that doesn't sing much, be suspicious. Be suspicious. Don't, don't, I'm, don't, I'm not making it up. Paul, and it says in Ephesians and Colossians, inspired by the Holy Spirit, when you are filled with the Spirit, you're going to sing. You're going to praise Him. Okay, you know, I don't have a good voice. Well, you can sing in your heart. That's okay. Jesus takes that too. Um, specific renewal of mind exercise with specific subjects. And again, so it might be self-worth, self-image, intimacy. You're going to find other subjects where they need to renew their minds in Scripture. Identify those and put plans into place to help them to renew their thinking. Specific actions to apply. God's Word and faith. Maybe that's practicing forgiveness. Maybe that's communication. Uh, I'm working with a dear lady right now who is wanting to rebuild a relationship with an absentee father where abuse was in the home. So we're walking through all this right now, uh, trying to figure out how that works in conjunction with some of our women, women counselors. Um, and then finally, active involvement in the body of Christ, which is the context of transformation. Okay. Uh, there's some resources, I think, there in your notes, and um, it's time for dinner, so let me pray. Uh, Father, I pray that we would have your mind and, and be transformed in our own hearts and our own character that we might come alongside people that have had horrible things done to them in your name that they would find exactly what they need for healing, for encouragement, sometimes for repentance, 
but that they might come to find an identity in you, that they would not be defined by their abuse, uh, but they would be defined by the gospel and who you call us to be. So, Lord, give us wisdom. These are hard cases. These are dear people. Uh, We don't want to mess it up. So give us grace, give us wisdom, and uh, thank you, Lord, that you entrust us with your spirit and your word to lead us in these things. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Encourage them, build them up, and uh, make them to be effective in their places of ministry. In Christ's name, amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.